We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So welcome to 2022. It's good to be back, Courtney. Yeah, we finally um, have some time to record some episodes for the brand new year. Yes. Yeah, obviously you're juggling a job, you know, a full-time job and, and the podcast and your PhD, so things are getting getting real yeah well same for you too because like we're both trying to finish phds and uh uh i think we're going to get them in at the same time yeah we figured that out yeah yeah which is kind of funny um i blame the podcast for that that's why everything in our timeline has has gone to the (laughs) same same end um (laughs) but yeah no it's it's been good and uh we've got some Pretty cool and exciting episodes this year, I think. Yes. Got some in the works. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Yeah. So for this first episode, this, this is actually part of a series which will come out. Though, I don't think they'll come out one after the other, but because, um, you know, they're pretty intense conversations, some of the people that we spoke to. But we went down to Bunbury mm-hmm. and had a chat with four people from Doors Wide Open. Yeah, and this was off the uh, the back of a conversation from one of our previous episodes uh, with Shane, who also works at um, Doors Wide Open, and we found his story really, really interesting and um, basically managed to get conversations with other people that work there that have had some relatively similar but also very, very different stories. So. Yeah, we've interviewed a number of people down there. We've got this little mini series for you. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, and so the, our first chat today is with a guy called Adam who runs the peer support team down there. He's, I think he's the lead peer support worker or the manager. Yeah, team leader. Team leader, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so we talked to Adam about his story and why he works there and how he got there, uh, and it is a very fascinating uh, story. Uh, it should be really good to listen to. I know that particularly throughout this whole whole series, Craig and I were just blown away by the honesty and um, the stories that have come out. Yeah, so I guess recordings. We, yeah, we probably should give a bit of a warning at the start that there we do talk about drug use and violence and yep. that um, that side of life um, and some of the stories. Yeah, so trigger warning. Drugs, violence, uh, homelessness, uh, these are very real stories. Yeah. yeah. So if that sort of stuff may make you feel a bit nervous or anxious, then maybe these ones might be worth skipping. But for those of you who are interested, and, and you know, obviously that's not all we talk about. We talk about people who've been, you know, kind of at the bottom and trying to lift themselves up again, you know, obviously finding themselves in difficult situations and, you know, health-wise and legally and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there is kind of a, a happy ending to, to these stories. So, yeah, if you're interested yeah. in that, yeah, I think these... Yeah, and if, yeah, if, the, if the ending makes it better for you, yeah, no, these, these stories are all so inspiring. Uh, they, yeah it's hard to put it into words so it'll be better off to listen to them yes anyway without further ado let's let adam do the talking yeah so the reasons why we started this yeah (laughs) But, um, yeah, without further ado, it's a pleasure to welcome Adam to the podcast, The Meaning of Health's on the road this week. So, yeah, down in we're down in Bunbury, which is yeah. really nice. Um, yeah. uh, do you live in Bunbury? Or? I do. Yeah. yeah. I do. I've been in Western Australia now for nearly nine years. Okay. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Where, where from before? Uh, I have a bit of a bit of an interesting background. I Before Western Australia was in Melbourne with mum. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I ended up in Melbourne with mum is a court order from my younger years in Adelaide. Right. Um, but I actually grew up in Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, cool. How long were you, so what age did you leave Papua New Guinea? Well, I was basically a newborn. I wasn't one, yeah, okay. I wasn't one yet before when we moved to Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was 11 when we came back. Mm, Okay. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. okay. Interesting. Yeah. So my father worked in one of the golden copper mines in uh, on a little island called Bougainville. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and mum ran the only pharmacy or only chemist, I'm not sure which one it was, on mm-hmm. the on the island. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that would have been pretty fun. Yeah. Just, interesting. Do you like good memories of being there? Yeah. 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 It's a shame it had to come to an end. Yeah. Really. <laughs> was it like lots of beaches and just like... Well, we we were on an island, so yeah, yeah. You know, the beach cool. was only ever a few minutes oh. away. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's in funny. any direction. Yeah, um, yeah, awesome. And it was you, my biggest memory. Unfortunately, is is the difficulties I had when I got to Australia. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, having to navigate what it meant to be not only white but Australian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all my Good friends in primary school were, you know, the 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 random Asian kid. The mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, all the dark horses were my mates because I could relate to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. So yeah, we're, so one of the main reasons we're chatting to you today is because if your involvement with doors wide open. Yeah. Down here. Oh yeah, we probably should have started with that. No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're you're a team leader there, is that right? I am. I'm yeah. apparently apparently I'm yeah. the team leader of the team uh, team leader. Sorry of the peer support service. Yeah. Okay. Um, a position that was kind of born out of chaotic events, uh-huh. uh, and we, you know, rapidly hired new peer support workers mm-hmm. and and got doors wide open functioning again within about a week of it of it um, being dis- disbanded in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. as a as a team leader of the, that group, what do you like? What's your typical jobs that you do? Like, what do you do? Well, the the irony of of my team uh, they're all people that I've worked with um, while they were in addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Big Shane is somebody that I spent a lot of time with one on one at Doors Wide Open talking about you know, changing his life and his direction and visiting him in prison and mm-hmm. um, things like that and eventually employing him when he got out. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee is Lee's another interesting story. Lee's the first ever person to present to Doors Wide Open covered in blood um, <laughs> and totally denied he had a drug issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, you know, 18 months later, I'm giving him a job. Mm-hmm. Um, he went off to rehab and got his got his mind back together and, um, you know, sky's the limit for Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then there's Tanya, who's also somebody who's uh, I've had close interactions with over many years, um, who had a small stint in rehab, who mm-hmm. continues to seek support in external groups and stuff, and now we all kind of mm-hmm. work together. Mm-hmm. My main role really, and it's forever changing because these guys are forever growing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the first few months was just about passing on as much knowledge as I could and teaching them the do's and the don'ts and where the, where the healthy limits are and, yep. um, you know, because we're all very similar in regards to, you know, we will, we will give so much um, to our own detriment. Yeah. And the, the reality is that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn that in my first couple of years of recovery that, you know, just because your brain's telling you to do something for mm-hmm. somebody doesn't mean that it's actually the healthy choice right. for either them or you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that was where we started was, right, guys, this is how you do this job and keep yourself safe. Um, and then it's really about, and still to this day, is about trying to maintain the culture and, the, for lack of a better term, the persona of Doors Wide Open. Mm-hmm. Um us being a unique service, teaching them that paperwork is not a priority. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, every, everyone's inclined to make sure that that paperwork's completed, like an intake form or whatever, but right. um, I'm happy if it's done within the first month. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah. the people, the priority. The delivery 100%. of the service. Not, not the process, the yeah. people. Get yeah. to know them, build a rapport, find yeah. out, you know, where we can actually hone our efforts in on them mm-hmm. um, rather than say, you know, come back next week and we'll sit for an hour and we'll do paperwork and at the end of that I might make you some false promises, yeah. um, which is generally what you get at okay. most other services. Yeah. Um, but with us it's, you know, again, within reason we're available 24-7. Mm-hmm. We now have an aftercare phone number and... Um, you know, people can contact us or get a hold of us whenever they want. Really. So is someone rostered on for that, sort of rotated through? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Not me. No. <laughs> Them guys. <laughs> Your team. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I don't only work for for Doors anymore. I'm only at Doors um, two days a week. Yeah. Um, which, you know, presents its challenges but also its advantages um, that Doors Wide Open can and does take a toll on its staff. Mm-hmm. Um, it does sound quite intensive. Like, it is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It is. We're dealing with people that are, you know, sometimes, um, for lack of a better term again, aren't socialised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then throw in the mix of, of heavy drugs or drinking or, um, you know, violent and traumatic pass. Yeah. If you can imagine it, they come through the door at doors and, and they come through, you know, sometimes at their very, very worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and we navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you do what you can, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. the scary the scary part most people probably don't understand is that we've actually been there. Mm-hmm. We get it. You know, mm-hmm. you know what they're going through. Yeah. yeah. That's the biggest challenge uh, for me anyway is, Nine out of ten people that walk through that front door, whether they're Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, you know, the the normal white Australian or Asian or homeless or successful or heroin, meth, alcohol, Mm. whatever, Mm. there's always something in each person Mm -hmm. that triggers all my memories. Mm -hmm. And that's... You know, that was the big warning flag that I had to wave for those guys. Yeah. <clears throat> that you will you will be working on your own addiction every day yeah. because... Be reminded of it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's no avoiding it. Yeah. So people who <clears throat> maybe don't have that lived experience but do want to work in this field often go through training and, you know, they get taught quite um, strictly about boundaries and, you know, professional boundaries and that sort of thing. Yeah. Peer support strikes me as being a bit different, a bit of a different dynamic where those boundaries may have to be a bit more flexible at times. Has that been your experience? 100%. Yeah. They, um, I wouldn't say the boundaries are forever changing, but you need to, like, let the client, and I'm not sure about the use of the word client, but mm-hmm. let that visitor or person know that, we are outside the bounds of a university degree or what the book says or mm-hmm. yeah. um, but then quickly as quickly as you get that rapport remind them that you are a professional yeah. um, and that there will be limits to interactions um, you know it is being a peer support worker because we can connect on a different level actually achieves, you know, a certain percentage of the hard work almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I know that because I was originally a Doors Wide Open client walking through that gate, you know, hungry and sad and lonely and um, and within the first probably five or ten minutes I had food in front of me. I had a, a nice, uh, well, leaner at the time, who's one of the founders, she just said to me, look, my son is or was on gear, I forget now which stage he was at then. Um, So I know what you're going through, Adam. That's not Mm -hmm. something a a person with a degree can sit there and say, I know what you're going through. Mm. Yeah. If they say it, they're full of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, unless they're one of the rare people that's 
been through it and then done a degree, but most of the time it's not. It's not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. So you just touched on there that you've, you've come through the service as a, as a client first and then you've ended up obviously working Correct. there. Yeah. It, are you happy to talk about, you know, what led to this and, you know, um, your journey? Uh, drop a pin on the map, mate. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe at the, like at the beginning you mentioned that things started to go a bit wrong after you'd been in Papua New Guinea and you came back. Well, that was when I was 11 years old. So, yeah, yeah there, there was some conflictions in me pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite feeling like I fit in, um, you know, but had a very solid family unit. So I, w- I would have to say things didn't go, you know, hashtag wrong till I was probably 16 or 17 when um, my parents split. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And mum moved to Melbourne mm-hmm. um, and dad, you know, dad kind of shut off from the world and started um, drinking a lot and he, he'd he been diagnosed with Parkinson's quite young and uh, he, I think mum propped him up for many years and then, you know, mm-hmm. when mum left... Dad kind of fell to pieces and right. was was doing a lot of gambling and um, things like that, which we soon we found out 10, 15 years later that had a lot to do with the medications they'd put him on. But okay. Um, mm, okay. I really had no beacon to follow anymore um, and was kind of in a rush to, you know, be independent and, and have money and... Uh, ego and whatever else, and I, I got pretty heavily into the drug game, um, which was always kind of around me anyway, being, you know, where I was living in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. But before I knew it, I was uh, I was in charge of my own destiny and I had really no idea mm-hmm. um, what was a healthy choice and what wasn't. And it didn't take long. It took probably two years... Um, of social drug use and if you can like whatever you can imagine I was doing and selling and involved in um, but a couple of years after getting pretty heavily involved in it I, I used a needle um, and then doing drugs after that was very different because nothing matches injecting mm-hmm. um, Is that because of just how instant it is? It's like it hits you faster. It's immediate. Yeah. It's strong um, and long-lasting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the old, you know, awakening the beast scenario where, you know, you can no longer socially go out and take a couple of pills with some friends or whatever. Yeah. You've actually got to prep your night the day before, have the drugs at home, use them at home, mm-hmm. and then head out for the evening and, you know, if they're not... If they're not that great at drugs or you want to party the next night, you've mm. got to go all the way back home and you've got to use again because mm. nothing matches right. injecting it. So, right. But, you know, it is um, – the moment I, I did that, my my social circles also trimmed out because a lot of people – the majority of people are actually quite scared of a needle. Mm. Um, and this kind of takes me back to Papua New Guinea as well. We were getting inoculations and things mm-hmm. yearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was that kid at school when they would get vaccines or whatever they were coming into the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was the kid that would run to the front. Right. Okay. So you were very used to needles for, like, health purposes yeah. and yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. So it was just get it in me, get it over and done with as a youngster. Yeah. And then I would actually enjoy watching all the other kids shaking. <laughs> You know, as they lined up. Fair, yeah. yeah. So that was an advantage as a 10-year-old, but a disadvantage as a yeah 15 to 20-year-old, you that, know. That fear mm-hmm. wasn't there later on. Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's All interesting. Right. And so, you, so you, when you started using a needle, obviously that changed the, the way you use drugs and the people that you were around a bit. It did. Yeah, and what, what else did that lead to? I'm, I'm assuming you might have had to do certain things to pay for your drug use and... At that point, in my late teens, early 20s, I was actually 
um, you know, a, a, a healthy way up the pecking order. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't having to compromise my morals to get my drugs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, looking back on it, I was fairly consistently doing exactly that, compromising my morals by selling them and distributing them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was weeks there where where I would literally sit down at the end of the week and I'd have 20 grand in my, my pocket and it was just mine. Yeah. You know, and you do silly things with money mm-hmm. at that age because it's really got no value. Um, so things were really... They kind of uh, bought into the whole cycle because I was doing well and I had the money and the drug use wasn't um, detrimental to me at all. It mm-hmm. was quite euphoric and mm-hmm. um, and my perception of things were people thought that I was some kind of like great man or whatever because I was free and mm-hmm. um, you know I could be constantly high and I could I always had money and nice cars and. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything like that, you know, that's not really born of substance, it all comes to a head and <clears throat> things start going wrong. Yeah. Um, and before I knew it, I was in a, a healthy amount of legal trouble. Uh, you know, I got locked up for a little while. Um, but because it was my first time round within the court system, I was able to access what's called uh, at the time the CARDS program in South Australia, okay. which was court-appointed rehabilitation drug scheme. So it's a diversion program. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly that. So it stops you from going to prison, but you have to agree to do something else instead. I right. had to go to prison for a little while. Okay. But then they put me in a rehab. Yeah. And then they released me under guardian, guardianship to my mother. That's how I ended up in Melbourne. Right. Okay. Um, and had... Ooh, five or six years clean in Victoria, living with mum. Yeah. Um, and then when all the court restrictions or guidelines, whatever they are, came to an end, I mm-hmm. I really thought it's time to party. Okay. Um, yeah. And got the ball rolling again. Mm-hmm. Well, just um, out of interest, what age yeah. were you when this happened, when the restrictions came off? Uh, so I was 20... 223 when I went to Victoria. So I would have been 27, 28. Okay. Still still a young guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and hadn't quite burnt the candle out yet. So yeah. it was yeah. yeah. That's that's the sad part of um of addiction in general is that there's a spiral downwards. Mm-hmm. Um and in my experience anyone that's living a healthy recovery after addiction has a really heavy rock bottom story mm-hmm. you know this is that that moment when they've got nothing left mm. they've yep. got no no power in their heart no power in their mind um and that's where the magic happens mm-hmm. so so you did like six years clean was it I, I think I, I, the the idea of then going back is a very interesting one to me because you've already spent so long without drugs was it like almost excitement to like get back into it was that how Um, you felt or was it just like a like a woohoo moment i I don't know (laughs) well there's there's more to the narrative when it comes to that because you know when i ended up back in melbourne i I had the structure and the strength of my mum behind me again Mm -hmm. so i started achieving again yeah so I got a production engineering um, traineeship and I spent 18 months working in a hellhole, learning how to use CNC machines and things like that. And that quickly taught me that I'm not made to work, you know, under fake lights in a warehouse. So I applied and applied and applied and became a civil firefighter um, and did that eight months of the year and four months of the year I was fitting tyres. So that was all going on. And then I decided, well, I don't have a trade. So I I searched and I ended up having to search the country to find a mature age apprenticeship. That's what brought me to WA. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
still clean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seven or eight months into that mature age apprenticeship, I fell asleep behind the wheel after a shift in Perth at the port and had a massive car crash. Um, broke a lot of bones, damaged my body quite a bit. And I think it was six or seven weeks in hospital, you know, and then I got home and rent hadn't been paid, bills hadn't been paid, all that. Right. And I just called in a favour and had an ounce of meth in my house within a few hours and less than 24 hours later I was using the needle again. So there was no woohoo moment. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. a oh shit moment. Yeah, really. it was yeah. a I don't have any tools in the chest to survive this alone. And I'm, you know, and my pig headedness um, had me not calling mum or brothers or father or whatever and saying, can you help me? Yeah. It was. You still kind of wanted to do it by yourself. 100%. Yeah. And that's probably the dark horse of my addiction is that there's, there's so much shame and guilt that come with it. Mm. Um, you know, which which are things that I've worked on a lot. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, there's no hesitation in me anymore to ask for help if I need it. Mm. Mm. I think, yeah, yeah and on, on like any kind of level, I think a lot of people struggle asking for help for, yeah. for anything. Yeah, I know a lot of people that really don't want to do that and it's it's so important. Just yeah. like that, that social connectedness is so important, mm. yeah. Yeah. We we as mm. I think we as humans or as people need some community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's an old saying about it takes it takes a community to raise a child. Mm. I think something like yeah. that. It takes a village to raise a child. I yeah. think that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the reality is, it, if it's if that's the case, then it takes a village to sustain an adult. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there is that give and take thing going on, and. That's one of the things that really works well in the recovery circles mm, is that mm-hmm. no one's got any fear or anxiety about ringing up and saying, I'm having a fucking bad day, mm. can you help me? Mm. Yeah. Or this has popped up, I need 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it may be, we we no longer have that um, hesitation. Mm. Yeah. Um, and if I could inspire even people who've never lived that way, to start living a little bit more community-minded. Mm, mm-hmm. It solves so much crap in this world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it really does. <laughs> yeah, because I think it's that willingness to just ask for help, help yeah. that can be the hardest, right, yeah. to, to get people to, to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and even people who are not, who don't have any drug or addiction issues, it's mm. hard for people to ask for help, you know. For sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. So... You, you're at the point where um, you didn't ask for help and you ended up using drugs again and yes. I'm assuming that spiralled into something else. It went it went perfectly fine for probably a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe 18 months. Um, and then I started having some issues with some of the local clubs yep. mm-hmm. because my, the drug that I was selling was clearly methamphetamine, but it was a higher-grade methamphetamine from South Australia. Okay. Right. And the local um, establishments, let's call them that, <laughs> yeah. don't like that. Okay. You're on their turf selling a better quality product. Oh, they okay. want to control what's going on. Yeah. They do, and they don't yeah. want to be. They don't want to be put to shame with the, the quality that they're trying to push on people. Right. Um, so I started getting some visits mm-hmm. um, yeah. and some issues. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. It's almost just like it's like standard business. Mm. Like, yeah, come in with a yeah. higher quality product, and everyone gets a bit like, yeah, feathers out. Yeah, <laughs> but in the commercial land, that means a few phone calls. And that's right. Possibly, yeah, <laughs> possibly an angry email. Different outcomes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but what it meant for me was my front door getting kicked in, and yeah. my my dog, you know, biting people, and mm-hmm. you know. Mm. One night they did get their hands on me and they, they roughed me up pretty good and, you know, that the next day I moved house and um, and I was lucky enough and, you know, to know people that I could just ring and say, do you know somewhere I can move to, mm-hmm. you know, and there's people that have extra houses just to grow pot so all of a sudden I've got somewhere to live but then I've mm. got to look after pot plants. Right. Yeah. 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 
you know, I could move within 24 hours. So that that went on a few times. Um, and then my, my line for quality amphetamines ended in South Australia. I don't know why. It just stopped overnight. And then all of a sudden I was in the ecosystem of WA um, and a nobody because mm-hmm. I'd worked very hard to be that nobody mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't fight my way back to making good money. So the next three or four years was just your average, and I don't like saying it, but your, your average drug addict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, you know, I was having to claw for everything Um Ended up living in Collie because that was the cheapest place to live. Uh, and that less than a year later, I'm begging to get into rehab and, you know, I, the moment, let's go back a little bit. The moment I used the needle again after the first, after six years or so of being clean, I knew I was in deep shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew this can't go on forever. It's going to end at some point. Yeah. yeah. You know, there was nights there where I was using and I'll alone and I would be crying and not wanting to do it, but I'd still do it. And yeah. I'd, mm. I think compulsion. Yeah. Almost. But you, a compulsion to escape. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, imagine you're down, at, you're down at your worst and someone comes up to you and goes, I can click my fingers right now. And I'm going to end the pain, mm. right? But what I want is a little piece of your soul. Mm-hmm. You're still going to get them to click your fingers. Mm. You're still going to want it. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's where I found myself at. A lot of shame, a lot of guilt. And I knew there was a way out, right? And for me, that only way out was using drugs at that point. And it's... um. You know, it's sad because that's the generic thing across anyone that's suffering addiction is that it, it's it's serving a purpose for them, yeah. mm. um, healthy or unhealthy. Mm-hmm. It's definitely serving a purpose. It, it always strikes me as a, it's a coping mechanism, yeah. right? Correct. Drugs takes you into a different place. Yeah. It changes the way you're your brain's working and that sort of thing and how you're feeling. Yeah. So I guess the challenge is to find out what you can replace that with That's because we all have to cope. Like mm. These things happen to us all the time. We have issues in life and stresses and stuff like that. So what have you found has worked to sort of replace that sort of harmful behaviour with something different that's sustainable and you are able to keep doing? My harmful behaviours are under constant management. Um it's it's difficult you practice you practice um destruction on some level and disorganization and poor self-care you practice that for 10 or 15 years and it's something that will take equally as long to set new new neural pathways it's like mm-hmm. what i what i what worked for me best at the beginning um, and it sounds a bit bizarre, but it was a self-hatred. It was a, I was raised better than this. And one of the one of the things I remember um, doing early in rehab, uh, my counsellor said to me, look, who do you want to be, Adam? Like, you're 35, let's think about another 30 years ahead. Where do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And I remember having this vivid image of two old men, mm-hmm. one sitting on a balcony, you know, with a nice view in front of him mm-hmm. and some, you know, a partner next to me and maybe some kids running around, grandkids or whatever, mm-hmm. and just had this overwhelming feeling of carefree but also a, a feeling of humility where what I had I'd earned. Mm-hmm. And then the polar opposite image is there for me as well is, well, if I remain living the way I'm living, I might actually be in the ground by then. Mm. Right. Or 
I'll just be in the same spot, sitting in a dark room with a needle in my arm, mm-hmm. wondering who's going to kick in my door today mm. or whose door do I need to kick in mm. to survive, for to get on with it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was... As it got worse and worse and worse, um, while, while in WA and I had to start compromising my morals um, and, you know, I did a lot of fighting when I was younger, training to fight a lot. So I, I knew I could handle myself and when I started to use that to my advantage to get up to no good and to, to you know, rob people and... Um, you know, if I knew someone was dealing, mm-hmm. then they would go in, go on the mental list about if things go really bad for me and I run out of money or run out of drugs, that's the door to go to. Yeah. Um, and then that started happening more and more and more and more. Um, and before you know it, instead of having one or two people looking for you, you've got half a town looking for you. Right. Um, so it's just, it's hard to put into words for people how how bad it actually got. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is what it is. I'm lucky. I'm smart enough to not have spent a decade in jail but dumb enough to have spent a decade on the street. Yeah. It's, it's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hi. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, It'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show. And you, men- you mentioned you went into rehab. Was that associated with, with Doors, or was that a separate, a separate service? Or No, Doors... Um yeah, we got away from doors a little bit there, didn't we? Um, that's all good. That's it all leads to doors at the end, right? In the end, yeah. Yeah. Doors, doors reminded me that... Doors reminded me of what I was missing, okay? Mm. So doors reminded me that there was genuine people out there, that there were safe places you could sit without any of the crap that came with the streets. Um and it, it, Lena, I remember Lena saying to me, look, there's only a few ways out of this, Adam. A couple of them are up and one of them's down further. And I knew I didn't want to die. I knew I wasn't ready to, to, you know, continue the spiral or to end it for myself or whatever it might have been. But the two ways up were either stay engaged with doors wide open and external services and, you know, battle through being clean and staying clean for years to come. Um, but achieving the same goal as what rehab would do, but in a more compressed fashion. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, when my 30th birthday came around, I thought, oh, Jesus, life's halfway through. So I knew whatever I needed to do. By this time, I'm 35, 36. I knew whatever I wanted to do had to be fast because I didn't want to be battling while I was when I turned 40 or battling when I turned 45 or whatever. Um, so rehab became a distinct and very clear option. And then I thought, can you smoke in these places? Okay, <laughs> as in cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it just turned out that Palmerston um, is the only... Pardon me, is the only um, rehabs in Western Australia that allow cigarette smoking. Mm-hmm. So that's who I went for. Because mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I couldn't imagine giving it all up. <laughs> so I ended up signing up for Palmerston um, and it took, uh, it took three or four months to get my bed and, um, and then the real fight started. Mm-hmm. You know, it was much more difficult than I ever imagined it to be. Yeah. That three or four months whilst you were waiting, how was, how was that and what were you up to during those months? I was a bad person. Okay. So you were still sort of uh, using and yeah, having to support yourself that way? Yeah. yeah. In fact, there was a bit of a compression going on because 
not only did I need to fund my drug habit and sustain that, I then needed to have what I what I needed for rehab. So, you know, new new and different clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed alarm clocks. I needed a watch. I needed a hat. I needed some yep. new shoes. Um, and I also knew that I lost that decision making where I started to think, well, why not? So when it came to, you know, Joe Blow down the road, I know he's got drugs. Why can't I have them? Mm-hmm. Which is not something that I would have normally have done so often. Yeah. But in those last, you know, three months or so while I was finally waiting for that bed, um, why not became an option a, a lot more often. Um, and I ended up getting chased by random people and police quite a lot in those last few months mm-hmm. um, and did some things I'm not very proud of. I have done some horrible things over the years. The worst things I did was when I was actually younger okay. um, and thought I had a lot to prove, yep. mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter who I did it to then. Okay. But when I was older and um, just b- between between thick addiction and going to rehab, it was all steered towards dealers and users, and mm-hmm. um, and that's how I justified it. They're in the game; they know what they know what to expect. Yeah, it's one of the risks of doing that business, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, don't know if you've ever watched The Wire, the TV series The Wire. I've heard of it. There's a character called Omar Little in that show, right. and that's what he was like. He he, I don't think he was that, that much of a drug user, his character, but he would go and hold up drug houses and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. fleece them of their money and their drugs. Yeah. It's you know. almost like a Robin Hood a little bit. kind of thinking, yeah. Yeah. But, it's, see, it's easily justified, right, because yeah. you're, you're taking from people that are evil, hashtag evil. Yeah. yeah. But there's also some guarantees to it. Yep. There's you're getting currency. Because yeah. the drugs are currency as well. So you're either walking out that door with cash mm. or something that's going to turn into cash. Yeah. So it becomes pretty simple. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's basically how I justified it too. Where I where I was living in Collie, my rent was close to what Centrelink were giving me. So I had to do something yeah. every week or every mm-hmm. fortnight. Mm-hmm. As a bare minimum, something had to happen. Yeah. Right. And if two or three things happened, then I could actually enjoy a bit of life. Yeah. Mm. You know? Yeah. So, it, and not not everybody is willing to uh, do that type of stuff, but for me it was never really a scary thing because mm-hmm. um, I could move quick and I could handle myself and fear wasn't really in the way. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So, yeah, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I, ca- I still carry a fair bit of shame about it, but, you know, I, I figure I was once Arthur and now Martha, so it's... <laughs> right. Yeah, and there's plenty of people who don't ch- do something to change where you, you've taken steps to change and you're mm. trying to give back in different ways, aren't you? So, 100%. Yeah. And so you mentioned that the the rehab was quite a tough process. Yes. So how, how long did that take, that time at Palmerston? I was there... A- a few days shy of six months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Palmerston's program is a minimum of 14 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that's more to do with funding than anything else. Right. Um, 14 weeks, I, th- I think, is enough to do half the job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I stayed six months and I was pretty blessed. I had, it's a large community where I was, so it was 44 beds. Um, when I walked in, I was number 38 on the list. Um, and because I am the way I am, I, I immediately thought I'm getting to the top of that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever it takes. Yeah, nice. You know, and I spent the first couple of months trying to manoeuvre my way to the top. Okay. Um, but quickly realised the people that are, aren't are genuine in rehab 
get torn to pieces by the residents mm. than the staff. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Um, so I, I wouldn't say I wasted my first couple of months there, but um, I didn't. I didn't make them serve their purpose to me. Genuinely, anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know the other blessing I really had there was the coordinator or the manager of the property was um, a, a wonderful and beautiful lady, but a stout Irish woman. Yeah. And her and I bumped heads a lot and, okay. um, you know, I was just crafty enough to convince her staff to let me talk to her mm-hmm. but not crafty enough to get past her yeah. <laughs> in terms of, like, changing schedules or programs or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a wonderful thing and I, I actually work fairly closely with that lady now. Um, and the other thing that really is a blessing looking back is the counsellor that I ended up with, um, Kevin, who had been at that rehab for 15 years or something and he'd seen all kinds of weird mm. and wonderful mm. people mm-hmm. come through that front gate. And sure, yeah. He, uh, he told me pretty early on that trying to pull the wool over his eyes was not really the best thing for me. Yep. Um, and I remember him saying, look at him, if it looks like bullshit, smells like bullshit, it's probably bullshit. Right? <laughs> and right now you're looking a bit like bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not as, not as iron-faced as I thought I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, rehab was difficult. It is, it is about there's a cognitive behavioural therapy that really um, rang true with me. Mm-hmm. Difficult concept to get a hold of, like mentally. But mm-hmm. if we really change our thinking, can change our emotions and change our behaviours. So mm-hmm. there's a, a strong um, system in place there. Mm-hmm. But how do you say to somebody that thing you hate and you think nothing but negativity about it? You can change your life if you just look at it in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to say, but to actually do, yeah, very difficult. Yeah, it it is. So I found myself sitting down about the thing, you know, thinking about the things I hated, mm-hmm. and trying to come up with something positive about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm actually practicing, not focusing on that negative list, shifting it to the positive side. Yeah, um, and when I when I started to acquire that ability of going, what's the positive thing about this moment or Mm. that person or this situation or whatever, Um, I felt less stress Mm. and I just started to be able to have more mental capacity left to do other things rather than be caught up in this constant grind of, oh, fuck it, Mm. I know better. Yeah. That shouldn't be like be done like that where really it shifted to well that doesn't affect me it's not that bad yeah. it's yeah so there there were they were the big changes for me was shifting shifting my thinking to one of like from one of control um and and general uh disappointment and hate to almost a free will thing where it is what it is I'll focus on what I can do. Yeah. You can control sort of thing. Yeah, you know? not necessarily control. What what I can play a role in right. Mm. To, right. to push in the direction I'd like to see it going mm-hmm. um, because I needed to drop that control. This is this is a bit of a swing in kind of topics, but yeah. that skill itself would actually help you with the team leader job that you do now, For because sure. you've got people that are coming in that are still under the belief that they need the control and stuff, and yeah, you can mm. use those skills to help them Correct. learn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you really think cool. it's a, a case of learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable in a way? 
There's, mm. Like there's certain things I'm never going to be able to. You know, to you know what you've just said is something because I work for Palmerston now as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things you learning to be comfortable with your uncomfortability is one of the lines that we say to people at rehab. Okay. Half the time, that's what you'll be doing. Yeah. So you'll be learning to find comfort in uncomfortable moments Mm -hmm. and it is really about building resilience. It's also about broadening horizons for you, okay, so so there's not a thousand things you're avoiding. There's Mm -hmm. only a couple of hundred. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that immediately your life is easier because there's not all those things that bother you anymore. Mm-hmm. Again, a simple concept to say out loud, but a really difficult one to teach people. Yeah. And that's why I chose to stay at rehab as long as I did is because I actually realised that the more I practised being different you know, that my choices became actions and my actions became habits yeah. and my habits became who I was, right? Yeah. yeah. It started taking place at rehab. Okay. And when I felt like there was more to be learned outside those gates is when I chose to exit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've hung on to that mantra to this day where it's kind of I choose to be straight every day and I choose to relinquish control every day and I, mm-hmm. I just choose to do what I can that's positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is what it is, you know. I'm still... There's some days I wake up, you know, I have a lot of using dreams, probably probably one a week where... I... Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So I don't know what... Understanding that crap is way outside the realms of my thinking, but I know it's something I need to deal with. So every now and then, once a week, once a fortnight, I'll have a dream where I am chasing drugs or I'm having to do something compromising to get the drugs. Um, And then there'll be this crescendo happen where I've got them, Mm -hmm. I'm about to use them, and I wake up. And it ruins me. Yeah, right. fair enough. That's oh god. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I wake up in that in that mode of being milliseconds from feeling the relief of the drug. Yeah. Mm. But I'm at home. Right. And I've got to remind myself you don't have to follow through with that. Yeah. You know, it's not. Mm. I think that's the hardest thing to explain to people who've never used a hard narcotic mm. is that it's an extreme level of escapism, an extreme level of euphoria. Um, the chemical releases that are possible within the brain mm. can't really be explained. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is extreme, the dopamine and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And with all the types of synthetics getting around now, it is not about hitting that one dopamine or serotonin or whatever. Mm. For some reason, it's all of them now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, there is, there is some drugs out there that really just melt people away, mm-hmm. um, which is sad. But Yeah. We're probably just about at the end of our yeah. time. Um, is there anything? So it sounds like you're, you're in a, a pretty good place. Uh, I was going to ask you where you, you know what work you're doing, but you just told us. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's great. And I'm assuming that's an ongoing thing at Palmerston. Yeah, look, I'm a support worker out at the rehab in Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Um, I am on a contract, mm-hmm. but I'm also doing their information sessions, male pre-entry groups and smart recovery groups. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're putting me to work and they're making the best <laughs> use of me. Good, yeah. Um, and it was a tough gig to get because they wanted me to relinquish doors wide open okay. Um, oh, okay. for, yeah. for belief of conflicts of interest, okay. um, which are a very clear reality in my world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's now they ended up giving me a contract that said that's at my it's my prerogative, I think the word is, to inform them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I do – I'm blessed. I get to – 
live my life of recovery without having to focus on it because I'm constantly giving insight to people. I'm constantly talking to them about what I've experienced, um, mm. what I think are their options going mm. forward. Um, I don't know if I would have made it without being initially able to work with doors wide open as a peer worker um, and then, you know, learning a craft, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. doors wide open um, and then being able to go into Palmerston and kind of have two perspectives. No, I know what the residents are going through but I also know um, I'm a stickler for policies and procedures so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always skirting the lines of what I'm allowed and not allowed to say and... Yeah. Um, which is easier at doors wide open because we are on the ground, but within within the realms of a rehab, it's very um, the standards are higher. The structure's yeah. more rigid, right? Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's lots of policies and stuff oh yeah, in place. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, and duties of care. Yes, yeah. of course. That we are there. Um, we are their caregivers in many ways. So, like, when I do sleepover shifts out there, I take it fairly seriously. The facility's got to be locked up yeah. um, and people need to be kept safe. And mm-hmm. I'm the urinalysis coordinator out there now, which okay. is a bizarre thing to be doing. Yeah. Um, you know, can I have your piss, please? Yeah. I've done that. I've done research jobs where I've had to do that in the, yeah. in the, in the watch house in yeah. Perth. Yeah. 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 So I, I live a... a I live a very rewarding life. I, I now have a partner that's actually a graduate of Palmerston as well. Mm. She is two years ahead of me in recovery. Um, I'm three and a half years clean. Um, you know, things are okay. Mm. Yeah. It It is still a fight every now and then, but it's not a fight that I'm alone in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a saying as well, you know, do you want to do it hard in addiction or do you want to do it hard in recovery? Mm. Choose your hard. Yeah. And, you know, me and my team have chosen our hard and yeah, that's what we're doing. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's an inspiring story and I hope that it continues in the Thank you. in the same vein and mm. really appreciate your time today and um, hearing, you know, and you sharing as much as you have. It's been yeah. great. It's a yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thanks I very much. I hope I didn't rattle on too much. No, no, it's no, been brilliant. Only a little, little, <laughs> little bit, bit. No, it's <laughs> fine. Fair enough. <laughs> and that was our conversation with adam from doors wide open and this is just the beginning episode one of our our series and i don't think we could have started in a a better position a better story uh with adam because it's just amazing what he's gone through uh, and how he's managed to reach out from where he was. Yep. And uh, we need to acknowledge the efforts of Dr. Jane Anderson, who was a generous host. And also, um, so we she provided her house for us to record in. And she also arranged everybody that we spoke to to come along. Um, she, Jane was involved with Doors Wide Open for a long time. Uh, and she's a colleague from our school as well, um, but lives down in Bunbury. And so, yeah, thanks very much, Jane. And yeah, she, thank she, you. <laughs> she uh, fed us a nice lunch, and you know. Oh yeah, that was um, so good. <laughs> tea. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, th- I'm sure that won't be the last you hear of Jane either. She's, she's no the podcast. We're definitely yeah, we're trying to get her on, uh, but we'll we'll see whether that happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was yeah, that was a, a pretty intense conversation. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed it. And we look forward to bringing you the next uh, episode of the podcast. And we'll probably maybe have an episode that's not a Doors Wide Open episode next, and then we'll continue with that series after that. I think so. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us, everyone, and we'll speak to you again soon. Yep, but wait, wait, Craig, you're forgetting something. Go on. Can people contact us? Oh, yeah, we always... (laughs) <laughs> you know, we've done 60-odd episodes now, Craig. I feel like you should know that we need to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's been, it has been a, a couple of months though, hasn't it? Since, it's true. Uh, that is very true. But I feel like the tables have turned now that I'm asking you because at the beginning I was the one who would forget. So yep. now it's your turn. So, right. Craig, how can uh, our listeners get in contact with us? 
So there's there's two main methods. Um, the first one is via email at meaningofhealth.outlook.com. And the second one is Twitter at health means what? That's right. So if you want to have a chat with us, uh, you want to give us feedback or you just want to tell us how inspiring Adam's story is, then contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for making sure that we ended on a high note. That's <laughs> it, professional. That's right. <laughs> and, and we'll be back hopefully in your feed um, in a couple of weeks. All right. See you then. See you then. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.